Could you please turn to the page 606 of the prayer book? It is T.S. Eliot's favorite con colleague. And while you are searching that, I thought I would thank Gary for the opportunity to be in this pulpit. And also, I would like to, um, to thank Stuart Blanche, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury and one of the most delightful visitors we've ever had in this con congregation. And this is what he taught me. To my deafness I am accustomed, to my dentures I am resigned. I can cope with my bifocals, but by God I miss my mind. <laughs> <laughs> let, us, let us pray together this uh, prayer. Almighty God, you alone can bring order in the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love and what you commanded and to desire what you promised, that among the swift and dangers of the world, our hearts may surely there be found, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Thank you. You may be seated. The purpose of this sermon is to celebrate 300 years of history of the Prince George Parish. Um, the Heritage Foundation reported on a poll concerning what happened to our country between 1960 and 1990. This study showed a 500% increase in violent crimes, 400% increase in illegitimate births, a quadrupling of divorce, a tripling of children living in single-parent homes, a 200% increase in teenage suicide, which is now even growing more than that, it includes a drop of 65 points in the SAT scores. In 1960, teachers identified top problems as, uh, with their students as talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the hall, cutting in line, dress codes, uh, infractions, and littering. When asked the same question, 30 years later, in 1990, teachers identified drug use, alcohol use, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. Now, this trend has extended to increasing sexual pathologies, terror, violence, and rampages of murder in schools and colleges. Is this not the judgment of God? Barbara Tuckman, the eminent historian, writes, In the search for meaning, meaning, we must not forget God's and all God himself is a concept of the human mind. God and gods are the creatures of man, not vice versa. This voice of arrogance can clearly be heard also in the writings of Karen Armstrong, the widely praised and rarely criticized ex-Roman Catholic nun. 
She claims in her much-praised book, A History of God, if we are to create a vibrant new faith for the 21st century, we must reject the deity humans have imagined. And she uh, is going to give us a vibrant new faith. Like a, back, a black cat on a dark night, arrogance is hardly noticeable. Another example is Jack Miles, who claims that Christ died not for our sins, but for God's sins. Miles panders to our self-centeredness by placing blame on God. He must change to meet our desires. This book won a Pulitzer Prize and a John Templeton Prize for religious literature. This arrogance that seeks to replace God is characteristic of hundreds of other people more than the three I just mentioned. They are not only God-forgetters, but they are God-haters. Are these illustrations of arrogance not enough to indicate that the trajectory of our culture is towards destruction? And if it is not enough, you could read my book, Trust in an Age of Arrogance. When, what then is to be done? Without God, we have diversity, but no unity. Without God, we have athletic gender in injustices and bathroom insanities. Without God, we are without divine justice, mercy, and forgiveness. Without God, our present hope for justice and mercy rests on the unruly wills of sinful men. Without God, we turn to drugs and suicide. Without God, our universities replace wisdom with power. Without God, death is the last word. Death not only for us as individuals, but for our country. That is the, what is the cure for our crumbling culture? Let's concentrate on one word, freedom. Our gospel for today tells us what Jesus told those Jews who believed on him. If you continue in my word, you shall be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they replied, what do you mean make us free? We are children of Abraham and have never been in bondage to any man. What made them lie? What, and what a big lie. They had been in bondage for many decades in Egypt. They lied because they were ignorant of what Jesus replies. Truly, truly, I say unto you, when the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Inasmuch as we are sinners, we do not believe that sin is bondage. Inasmuch as we are sinners, we believe that sin makes us free. If we steal, we will be free with more money. If we lie, we'll, we will escape responsibility. If we 
do not give generously, uh, we'll be richer. Jesus is telling the Jews and us that sin is bondage. No sinner wants to hear this. The very nature of sin is its promise that if we take someone's money, boat, or property, we will be more free. To be told that instead of being free, we will be the opposite of free, slaves. No wonder they lied to it. Popular, uh, it is our sinful human nature that claims that we are free when there are no restrictions or restraints on us. That is demonstrably wrong. Having no restrictions or boundaries creates not freedom, but chaos. The great, American, the great Anglican theologian Richard Hooker in the 16th century taught us that the heresy of free will uh, was a millstone about the Pelagian's neck. I know that needs some explanation. Uh, the Pelagian heresy skips the heart and Jesus' list of what comes out of the heart. It piles the law and the duties and responsibilities on the unfree will. No wonder Hooker calls it a cruel heresy. It is the heresy of the, it is the heresy of the secular world. A common name for Pelagianism is fussing. Fussing at people without giving them the gospel to enable them to forsake their sins. We are not born free. We are born with a heavy load of self as center. Our sister William Temple describes it well. When I come into this world, he says, and open my eyes, I am the center of the world. When I move, the whole horizon moves. Some things happen to me that I like, and some things happen to me that I don't like. I am the judge of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. The only trouble is, I am not the center of the world, and God is. That is why all of us need a redeemer, including the God-haters. But first, we must clear away a serious mistake concerning repenting. The dictionary's definition of repent is to change one's mind, metanoia. The dependence on mind pales in comparison with the Bible's change of heart. The trouble is that there is no Greek word for change of heart. There's no such word as metacardia that is so desperately needed. So we've had 2,000 years of substituting mind for heart. This replacing of the mind for heart as a matter of repentance is a huge mistake. The count, the centuries, for centuries until today, repentance is separated from the heart. This mistake teaches us to depend, depend upon our wills, our unfree wills, as Richard Hooker warns us. It ignores the heart which it control, which controls our wills. It ignores Ashley Null's wisdom. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and man, the man justifies. Change of mind, metanoia, 
meta change, knowing mine, has been the false hope in all these centuries. I can change my mind six times before breakfast, but changing my heart, my heart's heavy bondage of sin and selfishness requires a redeemer to set me free. In a modern concordance, it takes only one column to list all the references to mind in the Bible. But it takes eight, there's eight, <laughs> columns to list the references to our heart. Remember what Jesus says about our hearts. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defiles a man. That's Matthew 15, 18 to 19. The change of mind, metanoian, fails to deal with Jesus' list of corruption that comes from our heart. Repentance is, the ch is to change our heart. The subtitle of Ashley's book on repentance is Renewing the Power to Love. In the midst of unforgiveness, sin, unforgiven sins, we have no power to love. But once that sin is acknowledged and forgiven, as God has promised, the pride is washed, the arrogance is humbled, and God has the, given us in the power to love. The humble Lord is our Redeemer. But how does our Redeemer set us free? St. Augustine asked, answers for us, O oh man, what is thy malady? Pride. And the remedy, behold the humble Lord. Who is not touched by the Christmas scene of the baby and his mother. In his full humanity as a baby, we see something of the majesty of infant meekness. Behold the humble Lord. At the age of 12, he showed us the wisdom that we all need. Behold the humble Lord. In his ministry of teaching and healing, we see the unsurpassing truths of knowledge and of spirit. Behold the humble Lord. He, he tells us when the Son makes us free, we are free indeed. Behold the humble Lord. He showed his heroic willingness to be the Lamb Sacrifice for the whole world. Behold the humble Lord. He declares his love for us. In the grim, painful, shameful, near-naked crucifixion where he willingly paid the price for our salvation. Behold the humble Lord. He showed us his victory over both sin and death in his grace and his glorious resurrection. O oh man, what is thy malady? 
pride and remedy. Behold the humble Lord. Surely this is a message to our hearts. Would you accept the message and let this forgiving Redeemer begin to heal the distresses and hurts and sins of our hearts. Will you? Amen.